And now 54 sermons, we come to the end. I'm excited to begin a new study in Colossians next Sunday, but I'll confess to you this morning that I'm going to miss our time in these wonderful books. Today feels a little bit to me like saying goodbye to a friend. Uh, I've, I've loved these, these books of the Bible. But God's Word is rich with truth, so even as we finish this series, we rejoice to know that there is more grace to come from the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So 2 Samuel 24 is our text, and let's, let's look there now. Please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began in Aror, and from that city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the forest of Tyre, fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So that when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up. 
raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aronah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aronah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aaronah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aaronah gives to the king. And Aaronah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aaronah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered peace, burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Help us to understand Your word with faith. Help us to submit our lives to it. Help us to recognize that every word that comes from the mouth of God is for our good and is intended to glorify Your name and build up Your church and spread the good news of Your grace to the ends of the earth. Help us now, Father, to hear from the word as we ought. Lord, please protect me from error. Please grant us discernment. Please work among us, God. Your your word promises us that anytime you speak, you will not allow your word to come back void. Would you keep your promise today? Would you show us again that you are the faithful God whose word brings life and does good things among those who trust in your name? We ask for your help, Father, and we ask for it expectantly because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is not how you would expect the book to end, is it? Second Samuel 24 is a surprising conclusion to the life and reign of King David. It's not how we would end it. There's no parade celebrating David's time on the throne. There's no banquet or royal proclamation commemorating David's kingdom. Instead, there's a census that is apparently sinful and then unleashes the wrath of God. Why not end with chapter 23, which recorded David's last words? Why end here with three days of a plague that wipe out 70,000 soldiers who honestly didn't do anything? This is not how you would expect the book to end. And yet, if we've learned anything from First and Second Samuel, it's that God's kingdom does not follow what's expected. Second Samuel 24 is the last in a long line of surprising chapters, isn't it? This is, after all, the book where God used a once barren woman to bring new spiritual life to Israel, Hannah, 
was surprising. This is the book where the word of the Lord came to a young boy rather than to the established priest. Samuel was surprising. And this is the book where an overlooked shepherd becomes the king. David is surprising. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that in the final chapter, a flawed but repentant king reminds us again of the unfathomable mercy of God. And indeed, friends, that is the essential message of 2 Samuel 24. That is the fitting conclusion to the life of King David. Here at the end, as the book closes, we have one last striking reminder that the kingdom does not rest on David and his power, but on the Lord who is merciful. If you look now at the chapter, you'll notice that it divides into three sections. Verses 1-9 to tell us about David's sin. Verses 10 to 17 describe David's confession. And then verses 18 to 25 recount David's worship. David's sin, David's confession, David's worship. That's the outline of the chapter. So let's consider each of those sections in a little bit more detail. First, there's the problem of David's sin. The problem of David's sin. If you skip over verse 1, this opening section is really not that difficult to follow. Verse 2, David orders Joab to take a census of the fighting men in Israel. Verse 3, Joab protests that this is not a good idea, which is a major red flag. If Joab thinks something is a bad idea, then it must be really, really bad. Because Joab is a scoundrel. But verse 4, David insists, and since he's the king, his voice wins out. Verses 5-9 through describe Joab and his commanders canvassing all of Israel for nine months, counting the number of men who can wield a sword in battle. So apart from verse 1, it's a straightforward section. The problem, of course, is that you can't skip over verse 1. Not only does verse 1 give the setting for David's decision, but it more importantly explains the divine purpose at work in these things. Notice again what the text says in verse 1 and listen for the divine element. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and He, that is the Lord, incited David against them saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. You'll remember back in chapter 21, that God's anger brought a famine upon Israel because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. Here in chapter 24, that divine anger is stirred up again. But this time there's a difference. This time the text says God incited David to act. It's at this point we run into some hard questions. If David's decision is sinful which the rest of the chapter clearly reveals it to be. If David's decision is sinful, then why is God inciting him to do this? Even more difficult. If God incited David to act, then why is David later punished for his action? These are hard questions. Maybe among the hardest that we faced in the book. How's that for the payoff of finishing 55 chapters of exposition? You get the hardest questions at the end. These are hard questions. So where should we look to find the answers to these questions? Well, friends, we look to the Scriptures. It's from the Bible itself that we find help in navigating 
these difficult questions. Specifically, Scripture offers both an explanation and a clarification of the situation in verse 1. First off, there's an explanation. 1 Chronicles 21 recounts the same incident as 2 Samuel 24. The two passages are parallel. 1 Chronicles 21, 2 Samuel 24, same incident. And in 1 Chronicles 21, we learn that Satan incited David to number the men of Israel. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, you just told me that this was a clarification. Mentioning Satan doesn't make it any easier. How does this help? Well, it does help if we will think deeply for a moment about the will or the decree of God. 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 are giving us complementary perspectives on the will of God. Or you could say, complementary perspectives on how God's will is carried out. In 2 Samuel, what we have here in verse 1 is a display of God's sovereign will of permission. His permissive will. Remember, friends, according to the Bible, God is sovereign over all things. And therefore, everything that happens must in some way be decreed or permitted by God. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Daniel 4.35, God does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. According to the Bible, God sovereignly decrees or permits all that come to pass. Everything. And 2 Samuel 24 is a display of that sovereign will with God decreeing even the events of David's census. The Old Testament has no problem saying God incited David because in the worldview of the Old Testament, God runs everything. So verse 1 is not weird if you know the Bible. But at the same time, God's sovereign will is carried out through means. And the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles shows us that in this situation, Satan was the instrument through which God's will was carried out in the life of David and his kingdom. Yes, God is sovereign even over Satan. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then consider the alternative that he were not sovereign over Satan. That would be terrifying. It's two perspectives then on one moment. God's sovereign will of permission and Satan's instrumental role in carrying out that will. Now, if that's hard to put together, then think for a minute about the life of Job. Job chapter 2 actually uses the same word, incite. It's the same word that we find here in 2 Samuel. So let's let Job illustrate for us what's happening with David. You see what we're doing? Why? You guys remember Job, right? He lost everything. 
Don't want to assume. He lost everything. His family, his home, all his stuff. It's all gone. Why did hardship strike Job's life? Because God permitted it to happen. Job 2.6 And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. But how did hardship strike Job's life? Because Satan carried it out. Job 2.7 So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job. Friends, a similar dynamic is happening here in David's kingdom. God, in His sovereignty, permits Satan to incite David to take this census so that in the end, God's purpose might come to pass. That's the explanation. Secondly, there's also a clarification. The Bible gives us a clarification. And you've got to have both of them here. We can admit that verse 1 is hard to interpret. It's really hard. But, when studying the Bible, we need to remember the foundational principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. So whenever we come to a hard passage in the Bible, or whenever we come to a passage that seems unclear, what do we do? Well, we take other other passages that are more clear, and we use them to interpret the less than clear passages. Do you see? Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's what we should do here. Is God unjust for punishing David when God Himself decreed these things to happen? No. Is God to blame for the sin that David commits? No. Not in the least. But how can we say that? When verse 1 seems to imply that God is somehow responsible. How can we say that He's not responsible? We can say that because of James 1.13. God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. We can say that because of 1 John 1.5. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. We can say that because of Deuteronomy 32.4. God's work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Friends, those are very clear statements that God never does evil. That God is not the author of sin. And that God only does what is just and righteous. Those are not hard passages to understand. So when we read verse 1 here in chapter 24, and the hard questions start to come up, we don't have to shy away from them. We don't have to put our fingers in our ears and pretend like they're not really there. Instead, we can look to other parts of the Bible, and we can know without any doubt that God is not doing anything sinful or unjust or wicked. Because His Word tells us He never does those things. Now, does this mean we can fully understand how God's sovereign will and Satan's instrumental role and David's decision all go together? Does this tell us how we can make all the dots connect? No. We cannot fully solve that question. But perhaps that's the point. Perhaps that's the point, friends. It very well could be that the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty is not meant to answer all of our questions, but to call for our submission and our trust. This, too, is fundamental to understanding understanding the Bible. 
we submit to the Scriptures rather than insisting that the Scriptures submit to us. In fact, that's where I would challenge us today. Ask yourself. I'm serious here. Ask yourself. Am I willing to embrace and submit to the Sovereign Lord even when I don't understand every detail about His ways? We understand by faith, friends. So are we willing to trust God's Word even as we seek understanding? We believe in order to understand. It's not we understand in order to believe. We submit to the Scriptures, not the Scriptures submit to us. Remember, when we approach God, this is something that we get, that we get lost in our very kind of happy-go-lucky evangelical culture. Remember, but when we come to God, we are dealing with the infinite, immortal, almighty One who dwells in unapproachable light. That's who He is. We should expect an element of mystery to Him because He is God. We should expect an element of mystery to our dealings with Him. We should expect that at times we will reach the point where we need to put our hands over our mouths and stop talking and acknowledge that He is God and we are not. And that's what I hope we hear this morning from verse 1. By all means, ask the questions. By all means, don't misunderstand me. Ask the questions that you need to ask. But then recognize that at the end of it all, you need to be ready with humility to stand silently and not ask questions, but worship by faith. That's the real question from David's sin, is not how do we put all these things together, but are we willing to trust what the Bible says to be true about God? That's the first thing we see. Thankfully, however, David's sin is not the final word in this passage. Beginning in verse 10, we see the hope of David's confession. The hope of David's confession. After the difficulty of verse 1, it's good to find a series of encouraging things in this part of the chapter. And in fact, this entire section is brimming with hope. Not only for David, but also for sinners like us. Notice with me the progression in David's response to God that leads finally to a place of hope. To begin with, notice that David experiences conviction. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. We're not told exactly why the census is sinful, but it likely had to do with David's motives. Just think about it for a moment. Which one is easier to trust? A numbered army or an unseen God? Well, a numbered army, of course. It's always easier to walk by sight than it is to walk by faith. And for my part, I take it that's why David's census was sinful, because it was rooted in unbelief and perhaps even pride. Instead of trusting in God, David chose to trust in horses and in chariots. Instead of trusting in the God he could not see, David chose to count how many men he could marshal, by the way, under the banner of his own name. But here in verse 10, something breaks in David's heart. Something pricks his conscience. And David recognizes his sin. Friends, that's an incredible sign of God's grace in David's life. It doesn't happen, it doesn't take the prophet Nathan to come and confront him like it did in chapter 12. David is just inwardly convicted. David's heart, his conscience, 
is convicted for what he has done. This probably wasn't a pleasant experience, but it was for David's good. Conviction, while hard in the moment, is a good thing, friends. It's good for your heart to break over sin. We should regularly ask God to give us soft hearts toward His Word. We should consistently cultivate consciences that are tender toward the Spirit's conviction. We should recognize that not every quote-unquote bad feeling is actually bad. Some so-called bad or hard feelings, like conviction, are for our good. That's what we see here with David. His heart struck him, which was surely not an enjoyable experience, but it was for his good. David experiences conviction. But David doesn't stop with conviction. This is very important, friends. He's not just convicted and then goes away and wallows in his sorrow. He's convicted and then he confesses. He offers a clear confession. Again, look at verse 10. And notice the honest simplicity of David's words. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of Your servant, for I have done very foolishly. What a great example this is of how to confess your sin. There are no excuses. No rationalizations. David doesn't say, yeah, I mean, I guess it was technically wrong, but if you knew what kind of week I had, then you would understand where I was coming from. He doesn't do that. He doesn't rationalize. doesn't explain away. What's more, he doesn't minimize his sin either, which would have been easy to do. It, it was only a census. I mean, the argument would not be hard to make. It's just a census, God. But that's not how David responds. He simply confesses that he has sinned greatly, and that he did very foolishly. It's a clear confession. Brothers and sisters, does this sound like your confession of sin? And, and let's just acknowledge right now that we all have a need to confess, okay? Let's just get that out in the open. The church is not a sanctuary for perfect people, but a hospital for recovering sinners. And notice that I said recovering, not recovered. We're all in the process of being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So does your confession sound like David's confession here in verse 10? Are you honest and direct and forthright when you need to admit what you have done? Or do you justify and rationalize and minimize? Friends, if your confession is mingled with excuses then it very well could indicate that you're not truly convicted for what you have done. That you aren't honest in your desire to confess. Like David, our practice should be honest, forthright, direct confession. And yet, even as we think about this, even as we think about confessing sin, there is this voice in the background whispering, this is crazy. Don't, don't, don't confess anything. Hide. Ignore everything you've done. Do anything except confess it. I mean, have you ever heard that voice? I heard that voice this week. By itself, confession is crazy. But that's why we've got to pay attention to the last step in David's 
response. In fact, everything else is incomplete unless we get this last thing. David experiences conviction. He confesses his sin. And now David casts himself on the mercy of God. That's the last vital important step. He casts himself on the mercy of God. After David's initial prayer, the Lord sends the prophet Gad with a message. Verse 13, David has three choices. There can be three years of famine, three months of military defeat, or three days of plague. Notice that as the length of time goes down, the severity of the punishment goes up. A plague is worse than a famine. And so, having sinned against the Lord, David now has to choose. Remember, as the king, David represents the people. That's why his royal failure will have national consequences. As goes the king, so goes the nation. David's got to choose. Can you even imagine the agony of that moment? How can David possibly get through this? Well, notice where he turns. Verse 14. For such an agonizing situation, this is a beautiful statement. Verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David's distress is great, but by faith, David knows that God's mercy is greater still. Don't miss that connection, friends. The only answer in times of great distress is to cast ourselves on the great mercy of God. You see, David knows the character of God. And that's what gives him hope at this point. Even in hard times, David knows God's heart is for mercy. I mean, you can almost see it in your mind as David is wrestling with this agonizing decision. You can almost see him there in the palace reminding himself of Exodus 34 where God declares His name to be the Lord. The Lord. Merciful and gracious. Yes, that's who God is. He doesn't have to try to be merciful. He is merciful. He is the definition of mercy. And therefore, even as David faces this agonizing choice, even as he faces discipline for his own sin, he takes refuge in the mercy of God. And in verse 16, we learn that David's confidence in God's mercy proves true. Look again at what happens. The angel of the Lord is pouring out God's judgment on the nation. But as the angel prepares to strike the city of Jerusalem, something incredible happens. Notice verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. Friends, how sweet it is to hear the holy God say, it is enough. It's enough. That phrase is full of mercy. The Lord is merciful. He is slow to anger. His desire is to be compassionate towards His people. You see, David was right to choose as he did. He was right to cast himself on the mercy of God. In fact, in times of repentance, it's only the mercy of God that provides hope. Friends, that remains the great hope of God's people today. When we are convicted over our sin, we can confess by faith and cast ourselves on the Lord with hope because we know God is merciful. 
Listen, on its own, confession is crazy. On its own, repentance is difficult. It's costly. To acknowledge your sin humbles you and reminds you of how wayward and fickle your heart can be. What's more, the call to repentance is very costly. Sometimes your own reputation, your own life, your own well-being, it's too costly at times for us to keep going. It would be easy for sinners like us to grow hopeless in the face of our sin. And yet it's precisely at this point that we need to remember verse 14. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for His mercy is great. It's precisely at this point that we need to hear God's declaration in verse 16. It is enough. It is enough, God says. And you can't help but think of another divine declaration some 2,000 years later. It is finished. It's enough. No more judgment. Do you see the hope, brothers and sisters? The heart of God, even when He is pouring out His justice, even when He's pouring out His judgment, the heart of God is a heart of mercy for His people. If you're aware of your sin today, if you're pressed down and burdened by what you have done, if you are overwhelmed with the thought that no one could ever be used by God or loved by God's people because of the things that I have done, if you're burdened under those kind of thoughts, then hear again this incredible, incredible good news. The Lord is merciful. It's better to be in the Lord's hand than to face your sin on your own. The Lord is merciful. So merciful, in fact, that you would gladly place your life in His hands than to face the world on your own. It's that kind of hope of mercy that sustains David's confession. And I pray that hope of a merciful God would sustain us as well. That's number two, the hope of David's confession. In the final section of the chapter, 18 to 25, we find David continuing to deal with the Lord, but this time there's a different emphasis. And what we should note here is the grace in David's worship. The grace in David's worship. To understand this final section, you've actually got to pick it up in verse 17. Notice how David's focus shifts to the people. Verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. You see, David intercedes on behalf of the people. He knows that the people are like sheep. They can't care for themselves. They need protection. They need someone to lead them. And like any good shepherd, David puts himself in harm's way for the sake of the sheep. David is willing to bear the punishment on his own. Friends, before we move on, Think of how fitting it is that here at the end, we find David pictured as a shepherd. Where did we first meet David? Tending his father's sheep, 1 Samuel 16. Where do we leave David? Tending his sheep. Like a shepherd would do. You see, it's a small but poignant reminder that what God's people need is a good shepherd. Even one who will stand in the gap between the sheep and the judgment of God. So tuck that away for just a moment because we'll come back to it again shortly.
For now, notice in verse 18 that God hears David's prayer. David interceded on behalf of the people and now God reveals what that intercession requires. The Lord instructs David to purchase the threshing floor where the angel of the Lord had been poised in judgment. Again, note the mercy. The place of judgment now becomes the place of worship. Indeed, this threshing floor will be where Solomon builds the temple of the Lord. The place of judgment becomes the place of worship. So in verses 20-24, to that's what David does. He negotiates with Aaronah, the Jebusite, and David buys the property. At first, Aaronah offered to simply give it to David, but David would not accept the gift. In David's eyes, if there is worship to be offered, then he will gladly bear the cost to see it happen. So, verse 24, David purchases the threshing floor. Then comes the climactic moment in verse 25. Listen again to what the Bible says. And and please note the link between sacrifice and satisfaction. Verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. You see earlier in verse 16, the mercy of God restrained God's wrath. The Lord prevented the plague from spreading any further. But now in verse 25, the grace of God satisfies God's wrath. The judgment is not merely restrained, it is taken away. The judgment is dealt with, removed. Wrath, divine wrath, has been satisfied. And how did it happen? It happened through sacrifice. Please don't miss this, friends. Look closely Look closely at what happens here at the close of 2 Samuel. Led by the Word of God, the anointed king offers a sacrifice for the people, and through the blood of that sacrifice, sin is atoned for, wrath is satisfied, and the people are saved. It's salvation, is it not? It's salvation through a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice. And that's where the story of David's reign ends. With the shepherd king offering a sacrifice to spare his people. It's beautiful, honestly. The final picture we have of David is not of a king riding in a parade, but of a king bowed low in worship, trusting that the blood of this sacrifice will turn away the wrath of God. The kingdom does not rest on David, but on the Lord who is merciful and gracious. And as we've noted throughout this series, King David, for all of his significance, is a shadow of a much greater king to come. In fact, that's why David's life is so significant. That's why we spend 17 months as Christians studying an Israelite king. Not because merely that David did great things, but because of how David's life prepares us to see the one who is to come. In that sense, friends, there's no better way to end the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. Think about it. It is absolutely fitting that the conclusion to David's history comes at an altar where blood is spilt to satisfy divine wrath. David's life points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And David's altar prepares us to rejoice at the cross. David shed the blood of an animal to pay for his own sins. Jesus shed His own sinless blood to pay for the sins of His people. 
David made atonement to spare God's people from divine wrath in a plague. Jesus made atonement to spare God's people from divine wrath in hell. David offered to take the punishment for the people that they might live. Jesus willingly took the punishment for His people, standing in their place, offering up His body so that they might live. David purchased this place where sacrifices would one day be offered in the temple. Jesus offered the final sacrifice that fulfilled the need for that temple and secured salvation forever. David did all of these things because he was sinful and needed to repent. Jesus did all of His work because we were sinful and could not save ourselves. The history of God's people has always been about two things. Our need for a Savior and God's willingness to meet that need through the work of a Redeemer. David's part in that history has been to show us how God is going to meet that need through a king. Through a king who trusts in God's promises and leads the people where they cannot lead themselves. Our part in that history is to rejoice in the knowledge that the Son of David has come. That He has dealt with sin once and for all at the cross. That He rose from the dead on the third day. That He reigns right now from heaven's throne. And that He's coming back very soon to gather His sheep into the kingdom of God forever. That's the final word of 2 Samuel, friends. That's the closing message. It's a declaration of the Gospel of God's grace. Anticipated in King David, realized in the Lord Jesus, and proclaimed now for everyone who will believe. Amen?